Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me as always, via the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? How was your Christmas? Oh, hello man. Uh, Yeah, it was great. I feel sluggish, um, having (laughs) uh, eaten a lot and drunk a lot and I have to go back to work um, in a little over eight hours and I'm not Mm. particularly looking forward to it, not because I dislike my job, but mainly because... I'd rather kind of stay in this state of almost suspended animation fueled by cheese and mm-hmm. uh, like kind of cake and stuff. Yeah, this is it's quite nice, obviously, having a great stretch of time off. But it also I'm, I have routinely have to check my phone to remind me what day it is because mm. they've all kind of blended into one. It's just one, a series of Saturdays, essentially, which is like nice. But also I I occasionally lose track of when exactly i'm going back to work <laughs> which feels like something i should keep a handle on yeah like the, the kind of time between christmas and new year is like okay it's just christmasy time mm-hmm. like yes yeah. i mean they've got probably it's probably friday tomorrow um but then it, and you kind of think you're going to get some semblance of routine going and then new year comes and that throws everything out again and yeah it's just it's just a whole big thing mm. Yeah, although it's nice also like having a chance to kind of catch up on movies uh, for all of the the list making and things like that. Or to just, as I did, end up watching all of Men in Black because it just happened to be on TV rather than uh, watching any of the screens I'd been sent to consider them for for awards. Well, Men in Black's a very watchable movie, Ed. It is, and I don't think it got its... uh, You know, there's no rule that says the Online Film Critics Society can't name it their film of 2017. Mm, there'll be one vote for it, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Every year, yeah. someone votes for Men in Black. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, th- I think that'd be fine. It's a, it's a, it's one of the great blockbusters of the '90s. Mm, it's, it seems it's seemingly always relevant as well. It has mm-hmm. a message um, about immigration controls mm-hmm. um, that you know is perhaps uh, prescient to uh, the current administration. Yes, and it does have a, a line that certainly I think about a lot, which is that uh, a person is smart, but people are dumb, panicky animals. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which uh, it was a line that struck stuck with me as a kid, and only gets truer as time goes on. It seems, and another in a long line of Tommy Lee Jones performances, which could just be Tommy Lee Jones's normal life. <laughs> you know what I mean? I feel like he has that outlook on everything, and it's kind of like stony faced, kind of misery guts, mm. barely tolerating the people who want to talk <laughs> to him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is our end of year episode. We're going to be talking about kind of stuff we've liked over the course of the year. Obviously, we'll be counting down our top 10, uh, which uh, I'll be going into more detail later about how we arrived at our top 10 this year, because it's slightly different to what we usually do. But we're going to start off by talking about some of the the key stories, I guess, or themes of the year that kind of uh, leapt out to us. Uh, obviously, the main one for the course of this year, certainly since the show came back. Mm-hmm. Um, weirdly, that's how it all synced up, is that we stopped doing the show regularly while you were traveling and then you came back in September and that was around about the time that the Harvey Weinstein stuff started and you know the the past three months have, have largely been defined by all these stories about sexual assault and harassment in Hollywood and it's been really fascinating to me to see that that is still what people are talking about now 
because as I've said uh, in the past, you know, the, the concern almost as soon as it happened would be they would kick Harvey Weinstein out of Hollywood, essentially, or, you know, that they would people would try and stop working with him and then that would be it. Uh, but then they wouldn't get anyone else or anyone further up the food chain. But uh, that hasn't been the case. It's still a topic of conversation even now. And uh, that's uh, it's it's horrible in the sense that, you know, we're, we're hearing all these stories about abuses of power and in, in Hollywood and other areas of life. But it's heartening that it hasn't followed the pattern that these sort of stories usually follow. Yeah, it's, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere soon. And I, I imagine that as we move from now into 2018, we are not really going to be not talking about it. Uh, I think it will carry on. And as long as it does carry on, we will carry on talking about it and keeping it uh, the first item on the news if uh, that's, that's you know, what it deserves to be because mm. you know, it doesn't deserve to be buried under, um, you know, award season or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, although the way in which people are trying to incorporate into into award season so far feel a little ham-handed. Uh, so, t- you know, there was the thing about uh, women who are going to be on the red carpet are going to be wearing black dresses to kind of, as a uh, as a protest against it, which I think is, you know, great. It's a good way of um, weaponizing the usual red carpet talk. Uh, mm-hmm. If people say, like, who are you wearing? You can say, oh, I'm wearing this because of this reason. But then like the next thing you hear is like men saying oh we're going to wear black on the red carpet as well it's like hmm it seems like very little effort on your part to wear a black tuxedo considering that's what like 90 percent of people on the red men on the red carpet wear anyway Mm, it's a fucking black tie event yeah um so yeah and kind of we probably should mention uh, in since we last recorded um like matt damon um like falling (laughs) uh like fucking Gandalf in the two towers is so quick down my like my estimations of being like someone I thought was uh, relatively like progressive and thoughtful to literally just being an absolute dick mm. in his comments this week where he said well yeah I mean I understand that you know there's a harassment problem in Hollywood but I think we really should be talking about the men who don't harass women mm. it's just like that is the literal like bottom line of your achievements that like you you haven't harassed someone well that's what you're supposed to do um and like you know there was twitter was alive with the 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 matt damon jokes that were like you know you know funerals are bad but like (laughs) we really should be giving funerals for the people who aren't dead it's just like (laughs) just wow it's just i mean at first i thought he'd been like misquoted or it was like you know what i mean like it was just it was fake news ed Mm -hmm. but it was it, it was it was it was not fake news it was uh, genuine, and I mean, he's not had a very good year. Uh, he's not had a very good couple of years. But yeah, I kind of hope to see less of Matt Damon talking in the future. Yeah, because he also had in you know, the the that was on the kind of the press tour for downsizing, wasn't it? The Alexander Payne movie, mm-hmm. which by all accounts, well, almost all accounts, there's a few good reviews, but for the most part, everyone seems to really, really dislike that movie, mm-hmm. and. I thought it was really funny going to the cinema because I hadn't really seen or heard anything about downsizing. I just knew that it was a new Alexander Payne movie and seeing the trailer for it, I was like, that's what that movie is about. <laughs> it's about a company that shrinks people <laughs> in, <laughs> and they go into this, like it's kind of a high concept sci-fi movie. It And yeah, it's just, 
it looks very risible <laughs> and mm. you kind of wonder if maybe on some level is a whole it was like a producer style scam on Matt Damon's part it's like I really need to start saying stupid things because other people otherwise people are going to go and watch this movie <laughs> and I really yeah. need them not to <laughs> yeah I think it kind of also like given the position he's in and the circles he moves in given that he made a lot of films at Miramax that were produced by Harvey Weinstein he is seemingly tight with Casey Affleck and Ben mm. Affleck and other people who have been named in um, some of these uh, allegations. Um, I think probably like keeping his mouth shut would have been the best option. And I mm. thought he was kind of smart enough to realize that. Yeah. It's, it's sobering to think that Ben Affleck may have been the smarter one of that partnership. Cause that, I didn't see that coming. That was the real no. surprise of, uh, of uh, 2017. Uh, although really I think the clue probably came last year when that video of him and Henry Cavill talking about <laughs> Batman v Superman came out and as soon as Henry Cavill started talking he just seemed to kind of like slump down and just kind of stare off into the middle distance and you think yeah he's he's got um, enough kind of emotional intelligence to realize that his his career is not going the way that he probably hoped it was yeah yeah he didn't um, win that Oscar 20 years ago and then envisage himself <laughs> Um, you know, in a press junket, uh, in a risable film about Batman. Mm. Or even, you know, it seems like an, uh, an age since he won Best Picture for Argo. Oh, shit, yeah, I forgot about that as well. Yeah, but like within five years, being in two, uh, or three, I guess, including his brief appearances in Suicide Squad, three uh, critically mauled superhero movies. And rather than, as and then also... Live by Night was that what it was called the Dennis Lehane movie that he did, which mm-hmm. was this thing that he'd been trying to do for ages, and they like oh we're going to delay making the Batman movie until he can get this made, and then it came out and everyone was like, well better look next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not been a good year for either of the Goodwill Hunting lads for any of them because Casey Affleck's in that. Hmm. What's Cole? What's Cole Hauser up to? Maybe, maybe, maybe his fortunes have turned around. Yeah, I mean, uh, he'd probably be the luckiest of them all if he had just, like, I don't know, moved to the Pacific Northwest and tried to stay out of history's way or something. Just kind mm. of, like, thinking, nope, you guys can all handle this. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let people forget about me. Yeah, yeah, which they did, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, Gus Van Zandt, mm, don't know if he's done anything recently. He did that Suicide Forest movie with Matthew McConaughey. Mm, that, that sounded great, but then it was terrible. yeah. So he just, he probably has made like four movies since that, but literally no one has heard or cares about any of them. Mm, that's Gus Van Zandt. Yeah, he will have one movie that gets a modest bit of attention every 10 years. You get your <laughs> your Goodwill Hunting, your Milk. Uh, so we'll probably do another one soon. But yeah, mm. he's not exactly been setting the world alight. No. Uh, in terms of the box office this year, I think one of the things I found very, very interesting is that... There were obviously like huge hits, such as uh, the you know, Last Jedi, which is currently doing huge amounts of business. Beauty and the Beast, which I'm not sure even exists, uh, mm. because it's currently the highest grossing movie of the year, but no one talks about it or seems to pay any attention to it. But you also got a lot of movies that, on paper, should have been, uh, you know, kind of home runs, but which didn't do very well. We had uh, the. Fifth Pirates of the Caribbean movie, which didn't, which made one hundred seventy-two million dollars, which is a lot for most movies, but not a lot for a Pirates of the Caribbean movie. You had a War for the Planets of the Apes, which I quite liked, 
I thought that was a, a good cap to that trilogy, but it only made 140-something million. Uh, and most notably, of course, you had Transformers The Last Night, which crapped out at 130 million in the US and only and made something like 500 million worldwide, which is you know, what you'd expect from a Transformers movie. But it was really interesting seeing how franchise fatigue, which is something that everyone always talks about and which gets dismissed as something that will never happen. Like, oh, audiences will go to see these movies regardless. They're critic-proof. doesn't matter if they get bad reviews. They'll still make money anyway. Pretty much all of them this year was like if they got less than 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, people just kind of like threw their hands up in the air and said, nah, we'll, we'll wait for something, thanks. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that like if you look at those numbers, it seems to suggest that you can't leave it. If you're gonna, if you're gonna, if you're gonna have a franchise, you need to be banging out a film a year, or you know, if you're Marvel, like three films a year. Because, yeah. I mean, how long was it between this Star uh, Transformers movie and the last one? Three years, I think. The last one came out in 2014. That's a lifetime in franchise terms. Mm. Um, also, uh, we saw this like last year with the, the Bourne movie, um, yeah. the Pirates movie, like, like. There's that notion, if you leave it 20 years and then you make a movie, then some people have forgotten enough about how perhaps bad it was and you can make it and you have Jurassic World. Um, or Jumanji. Or, or Jumanji. Um, or, um, yeah, and you can kind of get away with it. But, like, if you leave it a little bit, then people maybe aren't as interested. I'm not sure. Because Transformers seemed, like you said, critic-proof. Every entry in that series has been critically derided. Um, but made, you know, close to the GDP of a small, like, African nation. Um, and that's crazy, but people just did not care this time. But I don't know, I see that they've, um, the first footage has come out of, they're doing a spin-off, aren't they? They're doing a Bumblebee mm. spin-off, um, which will come out next year. Maybe that's their strategy. If they've kind of milked the main Transformers as much as they can, they'll they'll bring Bumblebee out, I guess. I don't know how much of a good strategy that is. Yeah, I get that. I think is something they've been planning to do for a while, but mm. I think it definitely feels like something they should have leapt off after the fourth one. Like they just they just went back to the well one too many, and now the Bumblebee movie, which I think stars Haley Steinfeld, I want to say it does. It's directed by Travis Knight, who is the main guy behind Leica, mm-hmm. uh, who directed Par- uh, not Paranorman. He directed uh, Kubo. Yeah. So he's a talented director and you know there's a there's good people involved but you kind of get the sense that maybe uh, this also comes to the, the something like the mummy the the fact that I think this was the the year that the idea of a cinematic universe died. Mm-hmm. If it's not Marvel because everyone's like okay we're sort of fine with Transformers movies but we're bored of them we don't want to see a whole slew of spin-off movies because they were planning to do loads weren't they because it was like oh, we're getting a, a, a brain trust together of all these writers who are going to plan it all out and we're going to have all of these spin-off movies that are all going to, you know, kind of exist separate from the main Transformers storyline and then the main Transformers storyline died in its ass, And yeah. then The Mummy was like, oh, it's the start of the dark universe, uh, which, you know, they said we're going to do all of these classic universal monster movies and then the first one comes out and it does no business whatsoever and then the rest of them have either been uh, completely shut down or are being kind of like delayed or retooled. I think they're still going to do Bill Condon's Bride of Frankenstein because Mm. I guess that's just what he's been wanting to do for a long time anyway. (laughs) Like he's been trying to make a Bride of Frankenstein movie for so long anyway that it's just inevitable that it's going to happen. But 
uh, it's been really interesting seeing, and obviously the, the biggest one is the DCU, which uh, just kind of completely fell apart with Justice League. It's interesting seeing all of these things that were meant to be things that studios are pursuing to kind of prop up the entire industry falling completely flat. And then in contrast, you have something like a get out or a split or, you know, like an original concept that costs nothing Mm -hmm. and makes a huge amount of money. Like the amount of money that Blumhouse made off of those two movies alone is probably eclipses whatever Paramount got from the Transformers movie. Yeah. And it's, I mean... We, we we kind of have this wrap-up every year where we talk about it, and there's always a couple of films that tank big time, but there's always enough films that will keep going that will carry on certain trends. Like, we've got we've just had Beauty and the Beast. Like you say, no one's talking about it. It's got literally no cultural cachet whatsoever as the, the live-action movie I'm talking about. Um, but next year we've got Lion King, have we? Yeah, or maybe in two years' time. Maybe, maybe in two year. years. And, like, that's not going to stop. No, um, and I mean, what was the what was the overall critical response to Beauty and the Beast, the the live action? Was it indifferent or was it negative? I think it's one of those movies that I think probably has like an eighty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, but it's all because it's nothing but three star reviews. Right, okay. is everyone saying yeah this this exists? It's not it's gonna it's not gonna kill you. So mm-hmm. you know why not go see it? Yeah, but what so else I've... is there in February? Yeah, and it just seems to me that Disney is the only only studio that seems to be able to weather this, which makes the news that they're you know buying up Fox like even more worrying that you know they'll never fail because they'll own everything. Mm. Yeah, although then you may end up with an interesting stratification where Disney owns everything that costs a lot of money to make, and then everyone else just like migrates to like small companies that will produce stuff on a couple of million dollars and you'll end up with like a really interesting fertile uh realm which then disney will just like pick people from to make their big movies because they're like hey you're talented let's waste you on this Mm. (laughs) on this other thing that we're doing but yeah it, it does seem to also point to the further kind of depletion of the idea of the mid budget movie like there's almost nothing like the the closest like you had some exceptions like something like it which cost I think like twenty million, and made over three hundred million in the U.S. which is a uh, an anomaly and something that really needs to be picked apart and explained because I'm not I'm still not entirely sure how that happened or something like Wonder which has earned over a hundred million in the U.S. and is very much a kind of movie that doesn't do that well anymore. It's not a movie that doesn't get made anymore, but like the idea of a kind of pleasant four quadrant nice family friendly movie uh, that isn't comic book related almost doesn't exist at all anymore so to see one of them connect in such a huge way is really kind of fascinating and like uh, i think it was uh david sims the writer for the atlantic who said that he was i think it was about wonder or maybe it was about uh murder on the orient express how he was really pleased for whichever one of it was being successful, even though he had no interest in ever seeing it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just because it's like, wow, it's cool to see a different kind of movie do well. Yeah. It's not not all superhero movies or, you know, kind of big uh, known properties doing well. Mm. And I suppose it's not unusual now to see um, TV shows with budgets, the size of those mid uh, budget movies now. Um, the you know the film really has seeded that middle ground to television. 
Yeah. I mean, like you also had maybe something like Baby Driver, which was like 20 million, but it's not. When you talk about a big, uh, uh, mid-budget movie, you're talking about like, if you look at the 90s, 20, 30 million, that would be a cost of like a rom-com or a drama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it, something like Baby Driver, which is pointedly like a genre movie, uh, being a mid-budget thing is more likely to happen than for someone to say, hey, here's $30 million, go make kind of a pleasant while you were sleeping style movie. Mm, yeah. Or, uh, or you know, something like Girls Trip would be another one that cost a relatively small amount of money and ended up doing really, really well. But that, that also plays into like the idea of uh, audiences becoming more kind of fractured and, and smart studios saying, hey, maybe we should make a movie for black women because they go to watch movies and maybe they would like to see a movie about black women. Mm. maybe we could make money that way instead of just making movies aimed solely at teenage boys. Yeah. What were the big uh, kind of sleeper hits of the of the year other than Girls Trip? Uh, well, It, I guess, kind of was one. It's not a sleeper hit in the sense that it was like, oh, it slowly grew. Mm. But in the sense that at the start of the year, if you said, how well will a movie based on It do? I think I certainly would have said, mm, 100 million seems about right. Yeah. But... It ended up opening to 123 million, which is like one of the best opening weekends for an R-rated movie ever, and then earned 327, which puts it just slightly behind Spider-Man: Homecoming, and wow. just slightly ahead of Thor: Ragnarok, <laughs> mm. which is like rarefied air in terms of you know how well movies do uh, at the box office. So for a a horror movie, even one based on an iconic book. And inspired by, you know, and, and which a lot of people have affection for because of the miniseries in the 90s, uh, for it to do quite that well was was quite astonishing. Mm. And uh, you mentioned The Last Jedi at the start of the um, the start of the show, like uh, start of the bit about the box office. How, how has that done since it came out? Because we were talking about um, how it would drop off given that the reaction to it has been divisive. divisive. Um, has it dropped off uh, in the way that it would a film that might have some negative word of mouth attached? It's in a weird situation because like the, the story about it was that it lost like 70% of its business in the second weekend. But that was because its second weekend included Christmas Eve, mm. which historically is one of the worst days of the year for the box office in the US because it's when people are travelling, it's when they're having they're, they're going to see friends and things like that. So... After that weekend, it's recovered and it's doing well. It's currently at $445 million. It's probably going to overtake Beauty and the Beast to become the number one movie of the year before the year is out. And it's probably going to finish somewhere in the high 600 millions. So it's not going to do as well as Force Awakens, but I don't think anyone expected it to because Force Awakens was kind of a singular event, the return of of the, the, the Star Wars series and the Star Wars trilogies have basically all followed that pattern where the first one's really big, the second one makes slightly less and then the third one usually kind of does well. So, but in this case, the numbers were considerably higher than they have been in the past. Right, yeah. Okay, so it's just because it included that Duff Weekend. Because um, it's, yeah. it's not shown any signs of dropping off here and it's been out a week longer. We had, I went to the cinema yesterday and I turned up to see Jumanji and that was sold out, and the next screening was sold out, so we had to get one, two screenings ahead, um, and the couple in front of us were trying to buy a ticket for Last Jedi, and, like, it was all sold out, like, all day. And 
you know, is on four screens in one cinema. Mm. Um, and that's, I mean, obviously, it's, I think it's becoming, in the UK, I think that Christmas is, uh, and the holiday season is becoming a way more valuable time for kind of families to go to cinema these days, which has obviously always been the case in America. Mm. Um, but in, in, the, in, the, uh, uh, in Great Britain, when your big films are now released at the end of the year rather than all in the summer, um, mm. it's becoming much more of a, like a, a kind of holiday tradition to go and see the Star Wars or go and see the Harry Potter or go and see the Lord of the Rings that was coming out at the end of the year. Yeah, and and the thing over here that's interesting compared to the UK is in the UK, cinemas tend to be closed on Christmas Day, mm-hmm. whereas over here, Christmas Day is literally the best day of the year for the box office every mm. year. Yeah, uh, particularly when you have like a huge movie like like a Star War, uh, and that's what kind of Disney keyed into with the the Force Awakens. Like if they released Force Awakens in the summer, it probably still would have been really big, but. The fact that it came out at a time when everyone has a ton of free time to go and watch movies and to maybe see the same movie three or four times. And this was also what James Cameron realised with Titanic and then Avatar. Mm. That's a way to just get a huge amount of money in a relatively small space of time. So like, I think The Force Awakens earned something like $200 million over the course of the Christmas weekend. Force, uh, Last Jedi is probably going to earn about 150. So if you have a movie that can uh, monopolise the conversation in that way, then that's the time of the year to put it out. Mm. Yeah. What were the big bombs of the year, other than the ones you've already mentioned? Uh, I think, I think like, The Mummy, uh, like we briefly mentioned, that one was just astoundingly unsuccessful, uh, mm-hmm. considering, you know, big star, big aspirations, but also not a good movie, so... That didn't help. Baywatch was a movie that I think people were looking at saying, oh, this could be like a 21 Jump Street style hit, you know, that kind of runs and runs and no one had any time for it whatsoever. Blade Runner 2049 didn't do as well as I think a lot of people hoped. Mm. Uh, Earned $91 million off of a $150 million budget. Mm -hmm. Worldwide did 258, which is not bad, but not great. Um, and it was funny this week seeing Ridley Scott uh, in an interview, someone asking him what he thought about it. And he was like, no, I can't say, I can't say anything. You know, I've got to be diplomatic. And then pausing and then saying it was too fucking long. <laughs> 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 you got to, you got to love that guy who really does not give a fuck at this point, as evidenced by uh, all the money in the world, which itself is not doing that well, because I think not that many people are interested in the story. And it's quite a dark movie to release over Christmas, but Certainly from the perspective of, of people who are really into film production and uh, someone taking a really crazy risk of reshooting major portions of a movie mere weeks before it gets released uh, is certainly kind of impressive. Mm. Yeah, what about um, Valerian? Um, that, that, apparently, was... that, that really did badly, didn't it? It did. I'm having to scroll down. It must be very... Yep. Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. It earned... In the US, it earned $41 million. And worldwide, uh, earned $225 million, which is, like, a pretty consistent in terms of, like, considering it a sequel or spiritual sequel to The Fifth Element. Mm-hmm. That kind of had the same journey. But uh, for a movie that cost $177 million, I think, is technically the 
high, the, the most expensive independent movie ever made. Certainly, I think, the most expensive French movie ever made. Mm. I don't think anyone's walking away with too much extra change in their pockets from that one. Yeah. Um, and... Monster Trucks, another good one. Uh, Oof. Yeah, a movie that earned uh, $33 million in the US, $64 million uh, worldwide, and I think cost something like 80 or $90 million. Right. Largely because they had to reshoot huge portions of it to replace the original monster, who apparently was terrifying and scared children in uh, preview screenings. So they redesigned him and replaced him with a much cuddlier looking creature. Yeah, hopefully there's a director's cut out there somewhere um, <laughs> that we can we can see because I really want to see that. Yeah, because I I do I do like the idea of them of someone so misjudging what a film should be that they end up with having to just delay a movie by several years <laughs> and mm. then just releasing it and being like, yeah, here's this kind of goofy, cuddly creature because the one we came up with would have scarred children for life. Or maybe it, would yeah. have been a cool, it could have been a cool classic in that way in the vein of, I don't know, The, the Dark Crystal or something. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Any other um, films that really, really went down like the Titanic? And not like in terms of success. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Chips, the uh, adaptation, again, a, someone decided they were going to try and do a knowing update of a kind of a chintzy TV series, didn't quite work out, mm-hmm. and they were certainly one of the most divisive movies of the year, Mother, uh, directed by Darren Aronofsky, which um, earned $17 million in the US, $44 million worldwide, off a $30 million budget and uh, despite a very canny marketing campaign where they opened it wide it got terrible reviews or it got sorry wildly divisive reviews uh, and then like the next week all of the ads were saying see the movie everyone's talking about which you know is in terms of trying to salvage a situation is not the worst kind of tact to take mm. but uh, obviously didn't work out yeah and I mean, I don't want to accuse them of, uh, like, a publicity stunt, but, like, in the lead-up to it, they were like, oh, Jennifer Lawrence is going out with the director. And I was like, uh, really? Did, when did that happen? And then as soon as the film's over, they were like, Jennifer Lawrence has broken up with the director. I was like, mm, I see. <laughs> like, that is it. <laughs> or, or, like, the, the, the joke everyone made was like, oh, she finally watched the movie then. Because <laughs> uh, in terms of it, it's kind of a movie about a possessive male creative figure and his relationship with his wife uh, and you kind of look at it and think hmm may- maybe she watched it and thought oh right there was subtext to this that I perhaps wasn't picking up on when I read the script mm. yeah. slash did this as a favour yeah absolutely <laughs> before we get on to our top 10 uh, let's kind of get some let's get some of the the, the nasty uh, stuff out of the way first. Let's talk about some of our least favorite movies. I think we'll we'll start off with a movie that we both watched in recent days because it only just released, got released, and twenty seventeen was uh, uh, still had some uh, dry powder for the end of the year. We got Netflix putting putting out David Ayer's new opus, Bright. Mm, yeah, written... opus is right, <laughs> I guess. Yep, written by uh, Max Landis much discussed figure on Twitter, probably one of the least sufferable people to ever live, um, <laughs> based on every single interaction I've ever seen him have with anyone uh, <laughs> in the world, uh, yeah. writer of 
such movies as Chronicle, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Franken, no, not I Frankenstein. Victor, Victor Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yep, uh, American Ultra. Uh, that Dirk Gently TV series that no one seemed to like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just not not a man with a stellar track record. It has to be said. Mm. But who keeps continuing to somehow keep foot landing on his feet? Um, mm. And I believe. The rumour going round is that Netflix played three million for the script for Bright, which appear I mean, if you've not seen Bright, the script is exactly this. What if real life, but with fantasy, yeah? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the script. And yeah, uh, the film Alien Nation that came out in the eighties, which is exactly the same film as Bright, uh, which dealt with uh, you know, a world where aliens lived on Earth and there is uh, you know, a lot of it's it's a parable for racism, Ed, mm-hmm. you know. Because um, mm. all of all of a sudden, when aliens turn up, all the humans all suddenly forget their differences and get along, and turn their attentions to the aliens. But what if uh, a kind of a hard, no nonsense cop got a kind of like a partner who was an alien? That's mm. the the, uh, the the premise for Alien Nation, and also the title is Alien Nation, like alienation. Uh, yeah, it's not clever, wow. but but bright makes it seem clever. Hmm. Yeah, because it's, it's essentially, they say, it's a world that it's like ours, but also there's orcs and elves and things like that. And like the orcs are kind of a very clumsy stand-in for kind of the Hispanic population of LA. And the elves are, I don't know, people who live in Beverly Hills, I guess. Mm. Um, also, there are dragons that only appear in background establishing shots. Uh, it's it's one of these those things where... They think world building is like putting a load of graffiti everywhere about orcs or whatever, as opposed to like trying to create something that feels like a cohesive world. And I always got take I got taken out of it multiple times by just their weird pop culture references, such as or, or when like Will Smith re- mentions the Rampart scandal. I was yeah. like, okay, that happened in this world in which men and orcs and elves have existed together for 2000 years and there was some sort of battle 2000 years ago where the orcs lost or when he like makes uh he makes a a joke about shrek and i was Mm -hmm. like so was that in this world did shrek come out and there was like i don't know protests and did like the aclu get involved (laughs) because it seems like that would be very offensive in this world where genuine ogres exist Mm, and if if like if shrek exists then surely the Lord of the Rings movies exist, and mm-hmm. were they like, oh man, this is this is inappropriate. This is <laughs> like they must have been down with this sort of thing. Protest outside because you know that doesn't paint orcs in the uh, the best light. Yeah, and do you think there was a big controversy about Andy Serkis playing Gollum through motion capture? It's like why couldn't you have hired an actual kind of mystical creature to play this role why does it have to be a human you mm. know is there is there was there a greenwashing scandal about all of the uh, people playing orcs and what, does... why did they have to do special effects why didn't they just get real orcs in to play the orcs exactly it just feels like this opens up a can of worms that the film does not address but like it wouldn't it, it's always like you know when people talk about like the shark and jaws looking bad it's like it doesn't matter because the film's good mm. like you only notice this sort of stuff if the film around it is bad and Bright is just such a fucking dreary, joyless uh, movie that tries to meld the kind of cop genre, which David Ayers has done a bunch of times, most successfully, I guess, with that movie with Jake Gyllenhaal 
the name of which End of Watch. End of Watch. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's not. Like, that's not a bad movie, actually. End of Watch, but it's not a good it's a movie. Super, yes, it's but it's <laughs> it's it's delivered with verve, and I think he does a much better job there of selling the idea of the camaraderie of cops and also the idea of like the tension that exists when you have like a white cop and a, a hispanic cop having to work together and them existing around those sort of tensions whereas this one it's just like yeah will smith is just a racist and just <laughs> hates his orc partner for the entirety of the movie pretty much uh, and then also there's some bullshit prophecy stuff and a wand and numi rapaces an elf which at the very least is good casting casting her and edgar ramirez as elves is like the only smart choice in the whole movie because they're both very striking looking people like mm. uh or like lee pace in the hobbit movies as well it's like yep that's pretty much perfect choice for someone to play an elf mm. but it's the same i mean i have this problem with fantasy it's the same tired tropes that there is literally no like variation within single races <laughs> Like, mm. all elves are pointy-eared, good-looking, tall, like, elegant people with white skin. It's just mm. like, you know, it's so tiresome. And it, I thought, well, maybe they could try and do something new with it. But no, it's just it's just the same tropes, like, shoehorned into a... It's like he wrote the script in a weekend and they filmed it. Like, mm. it, it's, it's, like I put on Twitter, like, this is an idea that I would have had when I was 15... And would have been too embarrassed to tell anyone about it because I thought it was yeah. too stupid. And they just they made a ninety million dollar movie out of it. Yeah, and like watching it for me, it it felt like the worst possible version of like Terry Pratchett's Discworld books, mm-hmm. which towards the not really towards the end because obviously he wrote them for like thirty something years, but like twenty years in, he started to use the city of Ankh-Morpork, which is his version of London, to explore the tensions and difficulties of a multiracial society, a multi-ethnics and multicultural society. And, like, he did the thing of, like, elves and dwarves and these different controls all trying to live together and having these centuries-old conflicts. But he wasn't, like, crass enough to say, oh, to just do kind of, like, oh, elves are X ethnic minority um, like in this where elves I guess are Jews <laughs> that seems to be the supposition that I got from it mm. um, and obviously yeah. the orcs are clearly meant to stand in for the kind of the, the Latinx community of LA because they all dress like kind of like traditional cholo gangsters mm. yeah so like he, he was more nuanced than this and this is the most just lazy kind of like like you write a generic cop strip and then you just like you kind of replace all with elves or orcs or whatever. Yeah, it was really... like it's like Landis had been sent a script, and it was like just a just a really tired buddy cop film. And he was like, they were like, punch this up to make it more interesting. And he just wrote the word orcs on the front. <laughs> it's exactly what it is. Yeah, and with a mythology that isn't particularly well explained or interesting. Mm. Uh, just like oh, there's a wand, and some people can use it, and they're magic, but. Also, there are cops who are like one of whom is played by Alec Barinholt, Barinholtz in a uh, great piece of miscasting. Um, and also, there was just one thing that really annoyed me. There was one scene where Will Smith is talking to a couple of guys from Infer- Internal Affairs. One of whom played by Kenneth Choi, who's like a great actor, and, and another actor whose name I, I I didn't know. But they're talking, and then they're kind of they're trying to have some sort of like tough guy kind of back and forth and then it just ends with will smith saying to the non-kenneth Choi actor shave your mustache bitch and i was like 
That's such a weak line to end on. And also, you have a moustache as well. (laughs) Everyone in this scene has a moustache. I don't know why you're picking up on it in particular. And it just felt... Yeah, it was just... Everything about it just felt so kind of like tired and leaden and forced and no one involved seemed to think that they were doing much of a good job or seemed to be having fun. Except maybe Joel Edgerton, who like always brings his A-game. But Mm. even then, like he's operating under so many layers of latex that... It's kind of hard to say that he did much. Like, there's a whole scene where he's talking about how he knows, like, different kind of human faces to express certain things. And then he's, like, saying, hey, can you do... Hey, show us, you know, human face for wanting more pancakes or something. And it looks exactly the same because that mask is not <laughs> that expressive. Mm. It was just pretty bad. But it got it, got it in at the buzzer. It's, it's uh, like, snick in at the end of the year when he thought that, you know, the worst of list didn't have any more room. But it did. Mm. Yeah, that's the worst of the year, I think. Uh, there, I, I had some other movies that were kind of like disappointments, but there were none that I watched and just felt like at the end, oh, this is just such a waste of everyone's time and money. Well, uh, I, I did. I saw The Great Wall um, with oh, the, which the I, aforementioned Matt, Matt Damon. Damon. Yeah, how how was that? I know you asked me to watch it at some point over this year, but I completely forgot about it. Convenient. Yeah, um, yeah I saw it on uh, a kind of overnight bus in Columbia, um mm. ideal yeah ideal and um it is i mean it's baffling uh from start to finish it is the kind of the most inelegant shoehorning in of european uh characters into an east asian story and and setting uh that you will see and yeah everyone in it just looks really embarrassed um mm-hmm. there is a lot of fighting in it um some of which is quite inventive but ultimately, it's against like a horde of really, really uninspired CGI lizard beasts mm. um, that you don't give a shit about what they want or what they're doing. And then it kind of descends into a kind of a hazy mess of white saviour nonsense. Um, and like, if you want to see an actor act or attempt to act like they give a shit about what they're doing you won't see it in in matt damon's <laughs> performance because he is he is he really could not give a fuck his performance is so leaden and downbeat and like non-committal that he clearly realizes this is utter shit mm. um but is he's still signed up for it so yeah what he's doing there is 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 kind of uh is anyone's guess but it is awful no real redeeming features the action like i said in some places the design is quite inspired like they have these um, kind of female war dancers that are on like bungee cords that kind of dance uh kind of vertically down the great wall of china to fight lizards um mm-hmm. and you're like oh that's cool and then they start dying you're like oh what terrible design <laughs> um <laughs> why did why did they do that that's, that's dreadful um but yeah other than that it's it's just horrible from kind of Every angle is so poorly conceived. When I heard they were like, oh, we're going to make a movie which is about the Great Wall of China, you find out why it was really built to keep monsters out. I was like, I'm on board for that. And yeah. they've, they've, they've delivered it in the least inspired way possible. Yeah, which is a real shame because it's Zhang Yimao, isn't it? Who it is, yeah. Is a has directed a lot of really great kind of wuxia movies in the last sort of 10 years or so, like Hero and House Flying Daggers. Even like less good stuff like Curse of the Golden Flower. Which, from a dramatic standpoint, is like really inert, but is kind of stunningly designed and beautiful to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would kind of hope that he would 
he would do that with this and i guess uh, that wasn't the case and it also reminded me he did a movie with christian bale called like the flowers of war i think it came out like 10 years ago uh, which was another case where it was like okay putting in one token english speaking actor into this otherwise this movie that otherwise doesn't really concern them just, just to make it like more bankable but no one really paid attention to that one because it didn't have lizards which mm, I think yeah the, the main thing that makes this one stand out yeah, it's, you've got to have the CGI lizards. Yeah, I think other, other than that, like, uh, we've talked about Justice League. I really did not enjoy that. I saw a film called The Discovery, which was a Sundance um, kind of, like, film that I think probably was promising. It's about a scientist played by Robert Redford who discovers that they know they find where the afterlife is. Mm. Um, and then that leads to everyone committing suicide on Earth to try and kind of get there. Um, right, at least this kind of rash of suicides, like a, like a global epidemic of suicide, and then the film winds forward to like fifteen years later, and his son, played by Jason Segel, uh, and Rooney Mara is in it as well, and they go back to visit Robert Redford to see, you know, what's going on, and whether or not they can kind of get to the bottom of what his discovery actually was and 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 if the afterlife did exist and that is insufferably bad that is a film that i believe went straight to netflix from sundance mm. um it had a lot of pedigree but um and a kind of half decent premise but just turns out to be a confusing like kind of mess of bad half-baked philosophical ideas uh, executed pretty poorly yeah i think the only other one i really have in terms of it wasn't like a bad movie but in terms of like disappointing uh, i was really disappointed by uh, john wick chapter two okay is a fun is a fun fine movie but it was like the thing that added like flavor to the first john wick was all the kind of like the mythology stuff about you know all these different this secret society of assassins that kind of operate out of these hotels and trade in kind of like gold like doublets or whatever but the sequel is like 90% spice in that mm. regard because it's all doubling down in the mythology, which was the, the stuff that made the first one distinctive, but I kind of found a little uh, overwhelming in the, the second one in the sense that you're thinking this stuff is really weighing down a lot of like super cool action sequences. Like the, the I don't know if it's the final shootout, but maybe the the... the penultimate shootout which takes place in like a hall of mirrors and it's very indebted to awesome worlds the lady in shanghai is like amazing it's an amazing action sequences and there's lots of great moments in it but then you know Lawrence fishburne turns up as the king of the homeless people and you're kind of like okay this on paper is great in practice it's just a lot of people talking about things i don't care about <laughs> while i kind of wait for keanu reeves to start kind of capping people again mm, right wow okay yeah i didn't see it i, I did didn't mind the first john wick but yeah i didn't get around to seeing the sequel this will be a theme of this episode <laughs> with us talking about good or bad things and i say eh, didn't see it i was in the oblivion highlands or whatever you know how it goes yeah yeah that old chestnut <laughs> yeah yeah you, you only have a few more weeks before you can keep breaking that out yeah well it was uh exactly a year today that i left Oh, cool. um, which means that every single day for the next eight months, I could be like, oh, God, you know, <laughs> this time last year, I was on a beach in Columbia. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and yeah. it'll get tiresome to everyone. I'll probably end up stabbed. Yep, it's going to be just a constant throwback Thursday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, do you have any honourable mentions you want to kind of like throw out there of, of movies that didn't make the your personal like top choices, but were, were still pretty good? I'm going to throw out a, a shout out, I guess, to The Square, the Ruben Ostland movie, which uh, I didn't love as much as some people. I think it's too long and baggy and like in terms of doing a satire of the art world, it's taking pinpoint aim at some very easy targets mm-hmm. i don't think there's much more to be gained from saying that artists are pretentious or that it attracts people who are kind of like somewhat fake and phony but uh, elizabeth moss is very very good in it and uh, she's obviously like a great actress and i enjoy seeing her and everything and it features maybe my favorite scene of any movie this year which is one in which uh, all of these kind of patrons of the arts gather at a big banquet and then uh the motion capture performer Terry Notary then comes out pretending to be an ape and it is one of the most kind of tense funny and uncomfortable things I've seen and it goes on seemingly forever but during that time you really have no idea how the scene is going to play out and if you've ever wanted to see Dominic West get super flustered uh, it's very good for that as well Mm, yeah I personally like there's there's I've not, again, seen everything this year and I've not even seen half of what I should have because I've been away. But what I have managed to catch up on that I've enjoyed that probably hasn't made it, stuff like uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, which I thought was fantastic. Kind of probably a good shout for being right up there with the Marvel movies. So it was kind of fresh and exciting and interesting and featured some kind of plot U-turns, which given that the Marvel movies team to follow somewhat of a formula in their kind of third acts that was refreshing. Um, I really loved Paddington 2. I really loved the um, the Netflix documentary about Man in the Moon, uh, mm. Jim, and, Jim and Andy. That was very revealing um, story about how Jim Carrey didn't get killed uh, by the cast and crew of that film, um, <laughs> which, you know, was pretty striking i really enjoyed the net the, the three part netflix doc uh five came back which you guys have talked about before i thought that was absolutely fantastic but yeah like i'm just looking forward to hearing this is a very low pressure episode for me um because <laughs> you, you'll say something uh, you'll be like oh number eight this and i'll be like eh, yeah look good <laughs> nice one but yeah like it's it's i'm really looking forward to catching a lot of these movies that have been selected for our top 10 knowing that like mm. there's a lot of excitement ahead of me in terms of the year it's been a bad year as a year for everyone who is alive but mm. film wise it's been okay yeah it, it certainly has been a very interesting year there's been lots of really really great movies and uh i think that's represented in our top 10 now how we usually do this is that you and i will draw up our respective like top 15s and then we'll collate them and we'll assign points based on position and then work out what our kind of consensus top 50 top 10 would be from that list mm-hmm. but this year you hadn't seen 10 movies when we started <laughs> when we when we started putting together this list so you've, you've filled in the gaps a little bit since then but uh, it didn't feel as if we could kind of put together a, a top 10 but what we did have this year was we had lots of guests on we had people kind of come in to talk about a variety of different themes so what we did uh for this year's installment is we i i sent out messages to all the people who have contributed to the show this year. Thanks again to everyone who guested on the show and uh, we look forward to having you on the show in the future because uh, that's really fun. It's really fun having extra mm. people on the show to uh, so it's not just us repeating the same points about Netflix and the stratification of the audience or whatever. And I just asked for them to submit their top fives and again, same sort of thing, each 
placing got assigned a certain number of points and then once all of those are added together uh, i came up with a list of the 10 best movies chosen by shot reverse shot and all of its contributors including you and me mm-hmm. and so i think this is going to throw out some interesting results uh the first of which is interesting because it's a movie that i haven't seen because it hasn't come out in the u.s and that you didn't like <laughs> so this is going to be a weird note to start the top 10 on but number 10 is armando Iannucci's the death of stalin now as i said i haven't seen it so i can't comment matt what did you think of this movie? Well, I mean, I'm just thrilled to have seen one of these, mm-hmm. uh, this top 10. Um, but for me, it was in, I knew we were going to talk about it because you'd kind of, uh, you've tipped me off, but it would have been in my disappointment section because as much as it was good and it was enjoyable, it did not hit the heights that I had come to expect from the man behind kind of Veep and In the Loop. And what's the, mo- uh, what's the movie that they made that's kind of like In the Loop? It's called In the Loop, isn't it? Yeah, In the Loop, yeah. The thick of it is the TV show. The thick of it's the TV show, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what I'd come to expect from from that would was something that would have reached those heights. Now, for me, I don't really know as much about Russian history <laughs> as mm-hmm. uh, some people, so, like, a lot of it kind of... Like me. Yeah. <laughs> I did um, my, and, my dissertation on. Yeah, and uh, my friend, like, he did his uh, kind of, like, like a ton of his A-levels about, like, Russian, like contemporary Russian history, 20th century Russian history or whatever, and he thought it was amazing. Uh, mm. And, like, whether that was it or not, but then just a lot of the jokes didn't seem to land, and, and for me, some of the tonal shifts didn't quite work. There's There's some kind of, like really brutal violence tossed in with the comedy and, and and not in the way that that kind of thing should work effectively. Mm. It's kind of made you feel bad um, rather than feeling uncomfortable as to why you were laughing seconds earlier. But there's a lot to like in there. Um, uh, you know, the performances are all excellent. Everyone plays with their native accents, which is amazing. Jason Isaacs, uh, he plays his character from Skeletons. Uh, in this <laughs> as a kind of like a gruff he's like the head of the the soviet military uh but played as a gruff yorkshireman and yeah i mean there's a lot to enjoy in there but for me it didn't quite sit up there with the rest of Inucci's work yeah i'm still looking forward to seeing it because like you know i obviously have the it's one of the few things i have a genuine economic <laughs> background in is uh is is soviet history and the trailer looks good to me but obviously yeah without having seen it in context i can't can't judge but it, it did always strike me as somewhat of an esoteric choice for a movie to, to be made a perfect choice for amando inucci in terms of all the other stuff he's done but mm. still it's still the, like the oddness of it was was kind of what appealed to me and what yeah. still appeals to me i'm looking forward to seeing how it all kind of plays out eventually and i should say as well that me being disappointed with it i'm very much in the minority uh, across the board, it's been um, uh, universally like kind of loved by critics. Um, so um, please don't take my word for it, listeners. You'll probably love it. Um, um, it's just for me. Didn't quite boil my onions. Mm. Uh, and I'm, I'm also still confused about why it didn't get released over here ahead of the Oscar season. Because that happened with In the Loop, where it got released in like the summer of 2000 and nine mm-hmm. in the US and it qualified for a best adapted screenplay the following year because it was uh, in one of my favorite credits ever based on the character of Malcolm Tucker mm-hmm. <laughs> because because uh, technically it wasn't based on in the loop uh, on the thick of it sorry so I was kind of surprised that 
they didn't put it out earlier for awards contention, but maybe they're hoping that the residual goodwill lasts through until the Oscars next year. So we'll go on to number nine now, which I think we have both seen. Uh, it is James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Have you seen this one? Yeah, I have, yeah. It was really fun. Yeah. Uh, number eight? No, let's uh, <laughs> talk about it uh, a bit more. I, I was really pleasantly surprised by this because I, I did really enjoy Guardians of the Galaxy. I thought it was like a really fun, frothy addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It was a movie that took a premise that could have been kind of too esoteric to function and made it, you know, like work pretty well. Uh, what I really admired about this one was that instead of doing what sequels usually do, which is go kind of bigger and crazier, it for the most part got smaller and more intimate because mm. I think a good like third of the movie, at least, or maybe even half of it, is just characters in this kind of celestial palace that belongs to Kurt Russell's character having conversations about their various relationships and there's obviously a lot more kind of crazy space opera action happening with uh, the character of Yondu and you know and, and Rocket and Groot and all that sort of stuff but it was interesting seeing that a lot of it was more dedicated to exploring you know the the impact of Star-Lord being abandoned by his dad and his relationship to his father who is a planet <laughs> who uh, and then kind of the revelations that come from that and I was I was really kind of impressed with how well that shift in focus was handled. Mm. I would say that the the kind of the story part of it was slightly weaker than the first film but mm-hmm. this rides it because spending time with those characters is so much fun. Mm-hmm. I'm personally slightly worried about whether they can carry that off for a third film because there's genuine chemistry and there's genuine like fun to be had in 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 spending time with those guys and yeah it's just a wonder whether they can pull it off again um because the story was perhaps not quite as propulsive and interesting but like you say we did spend a lot more time with the characters and we got under their skin a bit more and i kind of hope we can they can absorb all the new members that keep being added and mm. and not kind of like not kind of have the wheels come off yeah and and to see them like deepen characters like someone like nebula played by karen gillen who in the first movie was just kind of an antagonist Mm -hmm. and didn't really have too much in terms of kind of character motivation or drive it was just yeah she's the right hand person of the villain so obviously she's going to go after them this seeing her and her kind of lifelong rivalry with her sister gamora and then exploring that uh, you know, was was much more interesting than just having them fight again. You know, mm-hmm. have them actually communicate their differences. It still involved them like running away from explosions and stuff, but it it felt like there was more meaty character work going on there than really James Gunn needed to do in terms of like the sense like okay, the first one made a lot of money. Let's just make a second one, do more of the same. He mm. genuinely said, okay, I'm going to give you a bit more of the stuff you like. You're going to get you know, kind of classic 70s and 80s cuts on the soundtrack. But he then, like, also took it in, you know, different directions. Yes, and they seem to... Like, the story between Yondu and Peter Quill was way more rewarding than the story between Kurt Russell and and, and, and Peter Quill. Mm. 
yeah and you know I, th- I think the idea of exploring different notions of family and uh you know fatherhood and things like that which were kind of things that the first movie was about nominally like mm-hmm. it was about the formation of a family whereas this but this film was more about saying okay but what does that mean to form a family from people who you know are from all these different backgrounds and are trying to learn to trust and uh, support each other and the, the 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 problems of that in that regard it it kind of records something like you know buffy the vampire slayer which obviously is a show that that i loved but I, I i was really it was really fun seeing that kind of dynamic played out with a super huge budget movie yeah it'd be nice to to have them you know get a, a kind of a, a run out in the avengers movie uh whilst we wait for part three which i think is coming in a couple of years but yeah, it, also the the soundtrack was every bit as good as the first. Mm, yeah, although at the time and still now, I'm still a little bit annoyed that they included the chain by Fleetwood Mac, but that it cuts out before the good bit of the chain by Fleetwood Mac, the F1 soundtrack part of it. But mm. it's, it's still a good song. But yeah, I mean, good... it's, it's, a, it's a song of two halves, Ed, and yeah. yeah, they're both equally good. So we'll go to number eight now, which is a movie we've discussed uh at length on the show before is Blade Runner 2049 directed by Denis Villeneuve yeah that was a good movie it's slightly faded in my memory since seeing it but Mm. every time I see an image from it I'm instantly reminded how beautiful that film was yeah it's definitely a movie that I am really looking forward to watching again which Mm -hmm. I think is always a good sign even when a movie kind of like you said recedes and you get past the kind of the overwhelming quality of the visual experience of seeing it on the big screen which was great in and of itself it's something that i'm I'm looking forward to seeing again just to kind of like dig into the kind of the, the thorniness of its plotting and it's the the themes that it kind of de- uh, touches upon with you know the notions of ai and and kind of exploring all of these cyberpunk ideas that you know it, it takes from the first movie but tries to push further on you know we're just repeating ourselves now from the episode we did about it but it's it's a movie that i that has you know fell down my list overall um from where it was it was riding up pretty high after i watched it and now it's in sort of the mid 20s which seems you know maybe that will change after i have a chance to to re-watch it but it certainly was i think better than anyone had any reason to expect from a much delayed sequel to a movie that wasn't that big of a hit to begin with and whose reputation has always been very contentious. Yeah. I mean, again, we'll move on quickly because we did have a whole episode about this, but the idea that going in, it was a film that I did not think that we needed at all, um, Mm. but now seems to be completely essential (laughs) to continuing that story started by Blade Runner um, was was a very nice surprise. Yes, and I look forward to the next generations Denis Villeneuve doing Blade Runner 2079 in 30 years time when they decide to have another crack at it yeah when Harrison Ford aged 196 decides to revisit all his classic characters for the 15th time (laughs) um, and you know we get kind of uh, Han Solo Force Ghost old man Indiana Jones and Jack Ryan (laughs) <laughs> his, uh, his guy from Working Girl, maybe. Okay, number seven, we have Terence Malick's Song to Song. This is, uh, I think anyone who's familiar with Terence Malick's kind of more recent work will understand why this is kind of a hard movie to talk about mm-hmm. because 
his movies increasingly don't have anything approaching a story. Like the blurb that was put out about Song to Song when he started making it like four or five years ago was it was like a romance set against the Austin music scene. And that's after watching it, that's still about as much as I could say about it. It's a movie in which people like Rooney Mara and Michael Fassbender and Ryan Gosling appear, but also Patti Smith is in a large part of the movie. Mm-hmm. And like the, the thing that certainly for me, because I, I really responded to it in a way that I haven't responded to a Malik movie in a while, maybe not since Tree of Life, was, you know, the experience of it. You know, he's a very experiential filmmaker. You sit there and you enjoy the rhythms that he comes with, comes up with from the editing and the juxtaposition of, you know, different moments, you know, kind of placing Rooney Mara in one instance in uh, a kind of a loving embrace with Ryan Gosling and then the next moment just having a kind of isolated and alone to suggest loneliness and he is someone who has become more abstract the longer he has gone on and this is this feels like i haven't seen um that movie he did which is about the birth of the universe which you can only watch in imax or whatever Mm -hmm. with one version narrated by brad pitt and one narrated by kate blanchett but you know of his narrative features this is the one that feels the most abstracted uh, and weirdly was also one of the ones I've enjoyed most. So clearly I only like him at like the extremes of super focused in Badlands and like just completely three associative in this one where you do get the see- the sense that he filmed these kind of Hollywood actors and real life musicians. Like there's one bit where Iggy Pop shows up and starts talking for ages for for a long period of time and then just sat in the editing room and then went with what felt right in terms of how this movie would be constructed. And uh, for me, that really works. But I can understand why, like a lot of his recent movies, uh, it's proven very, very divisive. I think this one may have got the worst reviews of his career, which uh, I personally don't agree with, but also can totally understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's that kind of guy, isn't he? I am really on board for his... Uh, super focused work as you put it his first three movies I really love his movies since then I find it very easy to tune out of Mm. yeah I mean this one kind of has that feeling to it as well because like I say there is the the spine of the movie in terms of like the plot is that Rooney Mara is in a relationship with Ryan Gosling but she's also kind of has a thing going with Michael Fassbender and she spends most of the movie kind of going backwards and forwards between them and then other people. And then at the same time, she's kind of trying to pursue her career in the music industry. And so there's lots of it that are shot at like real festivals, like South by Southwest or whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's not really much that you can point to beyond that as the story it is really just a case of seeing her exist in this world and see how she relates to these people and whispery narration mm-hmm. about things <laughs> and places feelings people have said that it's like a parodist's version of of malik and i think that's just you know that's not unfair i guess is the, the way to put it but it is a sign that he is an artist is kind of becoming more himself i guess he is really doubling down on the stuff in his work that he personally responds to and likes to do mm-hmm. and the fact that he is at a point in his career where he can do this sort of stuff uh is why he has kind of made what could be like the most pure 
version of his vision of the world in that it has very little in the terms of plot but everything in the way of emotion right okay but yeah so uh, it's like a wildly divisive movie but uh, i really related to it as did uh, several people who put it very high on their list in their ballots so uh, it's one that i think uh, people should watch but uh, if you don't like late period malik it might not work for you at all. Although, like I say, I've, I've really disliked To the Wonder and wasn't that sold on Night of Cups. So maybe it will convert people. Mm, yeah, it's open. Number six, we have a, a documentary called City of Ghosts, which is by Matthew Heineman and is about the activist group Raka is being slaughtered silently, which was a group of activist journalists or amateur journalists who started reporting on some of the excesses of uh, of the Assad regime, but also of ISIS in Syria. And it's a documentary that consists of footage they themselves shot on the streets of Syria, but also of them just kind of like out over the course of these several years of their lives where they go from first posting these videos online to eventually having to flee the country because people were trying to track, figure out who they were and kill them and having to go to like Turkey and Germany and travel all over the world. And it's a hugely powerful documentary about the importance of, of journalism in the kind of like the, the, the most basic sense, the fact that these guys risked their lives and some of, some of whom didn't make it in order to show the world what was being done in Syria by all of these different groups. But also, uh, you know, about these guys you know as individuals as people who are you know they're just ordinary people who were just living fairly nice middle class lives before their world fell down around them and then rather than being cowed by the things they were seeing they decided to to speak up and do something Mm -hmm. and it's the kind of movie where the moments of kind of humor where at one point they're in a safe house in turkey and they're just giving each other shit uh, about how one of them can't get a girlfriend uh, and there's just like a nice sense of their relationship with each other like the light stuff just makes the, the horror more oppressive because you know, obviously a lot of the things that were that were done by ISIS were were just appalling but also the horror makes like the moments of hope like at one you know towards the end of the movie one of them welcomes their first child into the world and you know there's kind of that moment of hope that's you know just makes you think maybe things could turn out okay i mean people are also still getting beheaded and it's still really really awful but there are still some nice things out there so it's a a hugely impactful watch Mm. where can we find that to see it because i've heard a lot about this film not just from you but from quite a few other people where whereabouts is it uh to be to be seen it is currently streaming on amazon prime in the u.s i think it may actually be a prime original so i think anyone who has amazon can watch it but it's also available to rent through iTunes and YouTube and Google and all the usual places. Mm, cool. I think I will um, check that out as soon as I can. Yes, it's a it's a it's a really really great movie, um, and obviously a tough a tough watch. Uh, I think it's the sort of movie where if I hadn't had to watch it for the purposes of talking about it on this episode because it was apparent that it was going to factor very highly. Uh, I don't know if I would have ever been in the mood to watch <laughs> a documentary quite this tough, but uh, I'm glad I did. It felt it was a very rewarding watch. Mm. Number five, uh, a movie that you have definitely seen because it came very high on your personal ballot. It is Michael Showalter's The Big Sick, starring and co-written by Kamel Nanjiani. Yeah, that was um, my like second favourite film of the year. I think um, I absolutely adored this film. 
Um, I love Camel uh, Nianjani and like always have since I saw him on, I think, like the John Oliver uh, stand up show that he used to do. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw him on that and I thought he was kind of great on that. And then he obviously is in Silicon Valley and see him kind of pop up in a whole bunch of stuff. And I didn't know a huge amount about this film. I knew that it was a romantic comedy that had some basis in fact. But then when I sat down and started watching the film and realized it is the very true and painful story of how he and his wife met, fell in love, and went through trials and tribulations together, it was um, even more uh, kind of like, had more depth to it. And I think for a genre-like romantic comedy, which is much maligned, shall we say, uh, and kind of sometimes fairly derided for being formulaic and uninteresting, this was a really kind of like much needed shot in the arm uh, for that genre and I absolutely loved it I loved the performances especially loved Ray Romano and Holly Hunter as mm. um, Emily's mum and dad and Bo Burnham playing himself yes very much himself uh, for me it was certainly a, a shot in the arm a, a, a kind of a, a motivation to watch some Bo Burnham stand up mm-hmm. because he is very funny and charming in the movie and yeah so I went out and watched a couple of his Netflix specials and he is very, very funny. Yes. Um, but yes, I, I really enjoy this. I had heard the story of the movie relayed by Kamel on, I think, his X-Files podcast at one point because he talked about the, the central thing that happens in the movie, which, uh, I mean, it happens kind of quite far in, so I won't go into too many details. But like he talked about it and I thought, wow, that's like a really incredible story uh and so when they said they were going to turn a movie make it into a movie i thought oh well that's that's really great and i think they handled it very well it's a very it's very funny it's very moving certainly all the stuff with romano and holly hunter i think is is really very sweet and well handled and uh a good reminder that they're both incredible actors uh, i think ray morano I, I don't know if how many people saw his work on things like men of a certain age but he is uh, someone who's really grown into a really compelling comedic actor, someone who can be very kind of open and earnest and raw when he needs to be, but also be really, really funny. I think that he played off of Kumail very, very well in their scenes where they have to like share a room together and they're kind of just talking and he's being very open and honest about his kind of the, the problems in his own marriage and Kumail really is not prepared for any of these things. Uh, he's someone who was not expecting any of this stuff to kind of happen in his life. Uh, my only major kind of problem with the movie, which I enjoyed a lot, is uh, I kind of felt like they could have focused more on Kumail's parents because there's a lot of stuff in there about, you know, him being, um, his family being from Pakistan and his the conflict between his their expectations for him and his desires as someone who has for the most part grown up in America and loves America and wants to pursue a very different way of life. There's a bit of that, but I kind of felt like it was something that I would have liked to have seen them do more. But at the same time, it's already a fairly long and baggy movie. So I guess something had to had to give. Mm. Yeah, and it's I I was slightly worried that we were going to tread over some familiar ground with the kind of like second generation um, immigrant kind of kids failing to live up to the traditional um, slightly more rigid expectations of their parents and being that kind of like 
bend it like Beckham type um, hackney trope that we'd see, we've seen quite a few times being trotted out, but they actually managed to do something quite nice with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the, his continued dates that he goes on, these kind of arranged dates that he goes on, are really funny up to a point, and then they have a kind of actually pretty uh, devastating emotional payoff mm-hmm. when he kind of dates that, that, that girl who's a magician um, yeah. and kind of has to turn her down. And, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a really great scene. The whole thing is very nuanced. And it also has my favourite line of the year where, and this is spoilers for anyone who's seen it, but at the end when, in fact, no, I won't spoil it, actually. I say There's a bit at the end where Emily drinks a fluid and says, ah, oh, that tastes like semen. And you don't <laughs> see him say it, but in the background, Ray Romano's character says, ah, oh, that's what a father wants to hear. <laughs> like, it's just a real throwaway line, but it made me cackle. Uh, in the cinema i just thought that was really funny the way his deadpan delivery that was perfect yeah my uh, favorite i don't know if this has ever been camille's stand-up it kind of had the construction of a joke so it kind of feels like maybe something he's done before but i really enjoyed him having one of his first kind of conversations with ray romano and holly hunter and ray romano asks him you know i've always wanted to ask you know have a conversation about 9-11 and then, like, he gets awkward about, like, you know, just just a conversation. And then, you know, what what do you think about it? And Kamal Nanjiani goes, oh, it was a terrible tragedy. We lost 19 of our best guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's such a, a perfectly structured, like, the, the whole, in their interaction and their awkwardness. And then him being unable to resist uh, the joke in that moment <laughs> felt mm. very true to the character as a aspiring stand-up who also has very serious problems dealing with the real emotions being thrown at him yeah do you think it's got like an outside shot at an oscar nom for for screenplay maybe that i think that would be its best chance i think the i, I don't i think there's a lot of room in like original screenplay for it to to pop through mm-hmm. so uh, unless they count it as adapted based on that one episode of his podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they do have weird rules about adapted screenplay. I wonder if uh, yeah. Holly Hunter is due a, a, a nomination. I think she'd probably been nominated before, maybe for like piano or something. Maybe. I think uh, if there's going to be any acting push, that seems to be the one they would go for. Like those are its two best chances are in screenplay and supporting actress for her. And I think both would be well warranted because she is... Uh, you know, she's one of those people who's just fantastic in everything. And I think mm. she's she's very good in that. And she certainly is uh, gives you a, a great instructional of how to deal with hecklers at stand-up gigs. Mm. Yep, furiously. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so number four, we have Sean Baker's The Florida Project, which is uh, his follow-up to the movie Tangerine, which was, uh, I think, featured very high on our top ten list a few years ago. Yeah, we love that one. Yes, and this, for me, not quite as... As great as as Tangerine, yeah, Tangerine is a very kind of abrasive but emotional, very moving, uh, moving story. And you know, there's the whole fact oh, it was shot on an iPhone and whatever, which uh, is less important than you would think. It's just kind of more of an interesting thing that someone decided to film a whole movie on an iPhone. But you know that that whole story is 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 really great. This one, uh, I like the idea of what he's going for, where it's basically kind of a little rascalsy kind of story about kids in poverty uh, out of this motel in Kissimmee and the idea being that essentially because they're kids they don't quite understand how bad things are for them like they don't really have an understanding that they are living in grinding poverty because it's all they've ever known and because the 
adults in their lives try to shield them from it to some extent and uh, i really like that idea it looks gorgeous uh, but being not shot on an iphone but shot with real cameras this time uh, and it has a great performance by willem dafoe who in terms of awards conversation i think is a shoo-in for at least a nomination for supporting actor uh, and it's just it's a very lovely but also kind of harsh movie because obviously uh, it is about grinding poverty and is about sort of people living on the verge of homelessness who have to stay in a, ho- a motel and pay month to month and at the end of the month they have to move out of their room and go stay in a different motel for a night so they can move back to the room <laughs> because they can't afford to pay a deposit on a real place to stay and what that forces people to do in order to survive uh, and I think uh, it's a it's a movie that does a lot of thing it ha- it toes a very tricky line i think it for the most part is very successful mm, yeah i can't wait to see that one it was it kind of came and, and went very quickly over here um mm. and i was kind of disappointed to have missed it but yeah he's definitely a filmmaker who pretty much anything that he's going to put out after tangerine is going to be worth seeing yes and um like, like you're saying uh defoe is is so great in it and there is a long protracted scene in it in which he deals with a uh, a pedophile who is like nothing bad happens to the kids but he certainly seems to have designs on them and the way in which he deals with that guy uh, is this really expertly constructed scene that goes in a way that you wouldn't expect and builds up to kind of a really uh, really fantastic punchline mm. Mm. insofar as the scene that intense can have a punchline yeah 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 i can't wait to see it okay so number three is the is julia i apologize for her for mispronouncing her surname de canal uh, her movie raw which uh, is a french movie about cannibalism a movie that i saw right at the start of the year and which remained very very high in my top five for the entirety of 2017 and still is is very high up there uh, about a young girl who is a vegetarian who goes to veterinary college uh, with her older sister who is a student there she eats she gets a taste of meat and that then causes her to develop tastes for uh, for human flesh basically but it's it's more a movie about kind of like sexual awakening about the sense of dislocation that comes when you move away from home for the first time to study at university even though I certainly can't say that my experience of university was quite like the experience that this Mm. I mean I I experimented but I certainly didn't (laughs) go down the cannibalism route (laughs) yeah maybe we all try something yeah that one's that's for the real hardcore Mm. um but it's it, it, it certainly to me there was a certain emotional truth to it it also helped that at one point uh, a scene is soundtracked by the song Giddy Stratospheres by the Long Blondes, which was a song that was a formed a very core part of my first year at university because it was constantly played at Fuzz Club. Mm-hmm. And also they seemed to play Fuzz Club every third week because they would always be supporting some <laughs> band or filling in for someone who left. So that was, uh, that was a pleasant surprise for me. But I thought it was just a, a wonderfully... played uh movie it is disgusting in places uh (laughs) i saw it in a packed uh screening and there were certain moments where the sound design was so 
perfectly pitched that everyone was just like squ- squirming at the sounds of you know biting and tearing and things like that but it it also you know there is a genuine kind of emotional intelligence to it in the way in which it interrogates the relationship between the two sisters and you know this young girl kind of experiencing all of these desires for the first time uh, and you know like the idea of horror movie as metaphor for growing up is is something that has been done to death at this point but i feel like this one really found an angle on it that felt new and novel mm. uh, yeah i'm gonna say again i can't wait to see it um and i don't want to run the risk of sounding like the film critic baz bambergoy who <laughs> famously had that exact line written on a on a film poster which is something you shouldn't go on a film poster from a critic <laughs> if you haven't seen it. Um, yeah. But um, I actually kind of can wait to see Raw because I'm very mm-hmm. squeamish. Yeah, there are some parts of it. Like I've rewatched it just the other week and I thought, oh, I know what to expect now, so it'll be fine. But uh, there were points where I just kind of covered my eyes, which doesn't help because the worst thing about it is the sound. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it's a, it's a, a movie that had a, a real great impact of me on me at the very start of the year. And uh, its power has not diminished. Mm, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I kind of tentatively can't wait to see that one. <laughs> Speaking about movies coming out at the start of the year, our number two is Barry Jenkins' Moonlight, which, because we're going by the UK release date, is a 2017 movie. And, of course, was the kind of greatest upset at least within a three-month period at that point, when it won the Best Picture Oscar in improbable fashion. Yes, which was fun to find out about three or four days after the fact, <laughs> as we revealed in our first episode back. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, Haltingly I, through a WhatsApp conversation of me laying out every stage of the, uh, of the whole debacle. Yeah, I still can't quite believe that it won. I, I seem mm. to like... Every now and then, when I think of Moonlight, I'm like, "Oh, that was a that was an amazing kind of film." And I was like, "Oh shit, that won Best Picture!" And I, mm. I still can't quite kind of connect that that actually happened. Yeah, it's so rare. I mean, we've been doing this show for six years at this point. It's so rare that you know we talk about the movie that get that won Best Picture in our top ten. Uh, except for the first year when we picked the artist as a hundred one movie, but it wasn't the Best Picture winner at that point. It was just this kind of weird silent oddity that uh we had all enjoyed mm. um but yeah so for the academy to get it so right is is very rare but especially a movie like this I and mean, we were talking about earlier with terence malick and you know him making experiential movies i feel like moonlight is a a, a more narrative version of that you know it's a movie about the experience of the main character of chiron over the course of his life in these different phases him how he sees and experiences the world how his sexuality kind of expresses itself over the course of these very different stages of his life and his relationship to his mother uh it's it's not a movie that's kind of heavy on story is very much about you know kind of overwhelming you with empathy essentially of trying to make you connect to this person who certainly in my case you know and and I'm sure this is the case for a lot of people, you know, it's, it's, it, his experience is very far from my own. Mm, yeah, he's, it's amazing in terms of how they managed to keep the thread running through all different actors and managed to hit those same emotional notes mm. and managed to, like, 
keep you invested across all of those time periods. Even when I got to the last time period and I kind of thought, oh, wow, we've kind of moved slightly into the territory where we're, we're kind of moving away from the kind of sensitive young man to being uh, a kind of like, you know, a hustler and a kind of drug dealer or whatever. But they still managed to hit all of those emotional notes and manage to, like, elicit all of the kind of emotion from the audience in such a beautiful, tender way. Um, and that's probably the best description I can give it. It is a very, such a tender movie and mm. in, in less capable hands, which is great because the guys who made it, it's like, it's like second or first film, right? Second, yeah. He made the movie Medicine for Melancholy in 2008. Yeah. So he hadn't done anything for a while. But the, the deafness of touch in dealing with all that is astonishing. Yeah, and it's such a wonderfully dense movie in that there are a lot of layers to pick at out in pick it uh pick at uh, in terms of like its influence talking about how it's such so uh owes such a strong um depth to one car wise movie and its use of color and mm-hmm. it's 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 pacing and its uh structure to an extent uh but also like the the idea of like his his final his final form <laughs> you know like his how he looks and how he acts and comports himself in the third segment and the idea of you know that that's uh, about performative masculinity and about what it takes to exist in the world if you know you you've experienced bullying and trauma as a result of your sexuality and things like that and all that stuff you know it's a movie that you can kind of pick into and analyze but you don't need to know any of that stuff you don't need to think in those terms you can still enjoy it like as a as a wonderful emotional experience and there's such a it takes such a deft deft hand to kind of balance those things where the the subtext is you know kind of apparent but not the sort of thing that drains it of emotion like mm. it doesn't become intellectualized, even though the tripartite structure of it could make it very easy to just make it like a an intellectual exercise. Yeah, and it's like immaculately performed. All three of those yes. actors carry that movie in in a remarkable way. And Marshall Ali's performance, I mean, obviously won an Oscar for it, and he's a great actor anyway. You always kind of roll your eyes when you think about the actors who have won Oscars for being in the film for like fifteen minutes, but. His kind of the character that character's imprint is on all over the film and all over the performance mm. of everyone of, of of the guys who play uh, that character moving forward. Yeah, and I think something that I think is really amazing, and I think also points to Barry Jenkins's tremendous skill as a director, is that uh, he didn't let any of the actors playing Chiron at various points in his life see what the other actors were doing. Mm. So those performances are all clearly the same character and even though like the actors don't look alike in any way they but it all feels the same and that is because he is he knows what he wants from his performance to carry over you know he's not showing these guys okay this is what this is what Travante Rhodes was doing so this is what I want you to do to kind of like foreshadow that sort of stuff it is entirely down to his ability to modulate those performances and get exactly what he wants to carry through and that's uh that's a real kind of amazing demonstration of what a director can do in terms of shaping performances mm, mm. it's obvious that everyone's going to be uh have, have the highest of expectations for whatever barry jenkins does next um mm. but 
Um, and he's going to have like difficult third album syndrome kind of following <laughs> it just because of the expectations. But um, I feel like the film was kind of so low key um, that his next move really could be in any direction and it would be mm. really thrilling to watch. Yes, and I'm, I'm happy to see that he is pursuing, he's doing an adaptation of a James Baldwin novel, which I think should be really interesting. Uh, you know, and it's nice to see him being able after, like I say, he pretty much didn't make a movie for eight years between Medicine for Melancholy, which barely anyone saw, and Moonlight, that he is, you know, taking the opportunity with both hands and, you know, really leaping forward. And yeah, I'm really excited to see what he does next. Mm. Okay, and we're at number one, a movie that beat Moonlight by a single point. It was very, very close at the top. It is Jordan Peele's Get Out, which... Uh, was another movie which came out very very early on in the year and uh, did spectacularly well in the US it made over 175 million dollars uh which is it was incredible uh it became a topic of conversation it was very zeitgeisty and lots of think pieces written about it but there was that sense that you know oh, it's not going to it's not going to kind of sustain the conversation because people's attention will move on to something else but uh wonderfully it has remained in the conversation it's now a serious contender for a best picture nomination and a bunch of other uh, nominations jordan peele is a, a has gone from being a kind of a comic actor in the second half of a very successful uh sketch duo to being kind of a major force in hollywood uh and it's been a, a wonderful thing to see that happen over the course of the last year mm, yeah i'm it was when i came back and it was uh, kind of I was faced with this overwhelming pile of films to work through that I'd missed. It was the first film that I I kind of um, uh, rented to to watch, and it has uh, it kind of blew me away. I thought it was I thought it was going to be good because I had heard everyone talking about it and how good it was, um, but for a debut film, mm. um, it is remarkably assured. Um, yes, and not only does um, Jordan Peele have like you know almost total control over uh, the you know his comedic um um the, the kind of comedic angle that he takes on everything but being so well versed in genre as well is uh you know it's really really kind of hard to be able to do uh, those mm-hmm. things and and kind of move so seamlessly between them I still don't think the golden globes are right to call it a comedy um mm-hmm. I mean there are comedic elements to it but it's certainly not a comedy. The the kind of the, the the bits were that are funny kind of just only serve to remind us that this is all too real and that the characters are kind of it's kind of like gallows humour that they're saying to get through these kind of horrendous situations. But like what's interesting to me to see is that like how prescient that film will be for you know, the immediate future and, you know, for years going ahead. There's a bit at the end where we think everything is is going to be all right and then the police turn up. And I'm like, mm. yay, the police are here. And I was like, shit, the lead character's black. This is going to be <laughs> terrible. And that yeah. is, like, like this year and, like, you know, that is such an amazing reaction to elicit from someone and, like, something that, you know, they knew exactly what they were doing there. Um, mm. And it's it's always going to be a, a spiky political film, but also a really effective horror film. Yeah, that moment for me was so well done. And that was, I think, the moment. I, I, I loved the movie 
all the way through. And like you say, for for the various reasons, it's such a good realization of that kind of Ira Levin style horror of your Stepford Wives and your Rosemary's Baby um, feel. But that moment, I thought this is so it's so good how it has put the audience you know to, which is not is obviously not going to be just white people like people from all backgrounds are watching it but certainly a white audience have been made to sympathize with you know a black protagonist for all the way through and put into the mindset of realizing why the police showing up is not a good thing in this particular moment and the particular tableau that jordan peele constructs for that final moment in the movie mm. uh, that that you know the, the the way in which the movie has played up out to that point you don't want to be a black guy when the uh when the police show up as uh, i think i joked at the time uh that's the sort of situation that's going to get your name trending on twitter to mm. uh cannibalize my own joke from many months ago but i think um Another thing about it that is is great, and not just the the directing, which is is wonderful, kind of exciting, tense. Uh, the writing, you know, is is wonderfully constructed. I think it's got some amazing performances. Obviously, uh, Daniel Kaluuya, Tea Leaf himself, is uh, is wonderful in the lead. He does a great job of balancing a guy who's trying to put up his best face forward because he's visiting his girlfriend's parents' house, and he really is trying to keep everything under control and doesn't quite realize the danger that he's in mm-hmm. uh Alison, Alison williams uh and uh marcus henderson betty G- gabrielle lakeith stanfield all these people who are having to play different levels of a performance particularly like uh betty gabriel and marcus henderson are both playing several characters in one moment and that's a very difficult thing to play but it's what lends it a great replay value in the movie is getting to see just how wonderfully layered those performances are. Mm, yeah. And uh, Catherine Keener and Bradley Whitford as the almost seemingly idyllic parents who would have voted for Obama a third time if they could have done, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but are going to, yeah, kind of go to some dark and terrifying places. Yes. And uh, also, uh, shout out to Lil Rel Howery, who is uh, fantastic as uh, Rod, Chris's friend, who is uh, kind of tracking what's happening to him over the course of the movie and is kind of the, the obvious comic relief of the movie, but is incredibly funny in mm. kind of like his handful of scenes. Yeah, when he goes to the police to report it, um, <laughs> that is a, a rare break from the tension. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but so... Uh, I think that's a, a fine number one for the year. Uh, I think it was pretty much that <laughs> was what I thought was going to be number one when we started getting ballots in because it had a, a pretty good groundswell of support. It was uh, either number one or number two and a bunch of ballots that I got. And obviously just over the course of the last year, it's not been out of the conversation. So it would have been surprising if it didn't show up uh, at least on a few ballots. Mm-hmm. I, I, for one, am really excited to see how it's, uh, awards fortunes play out over the next couple of months because it certainly is doing pretty well so far in at least getting nominations yeah 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 and you don't want to see it get the token nod you want to see it be a contender um yeah. and i think it is well it will be whether the uh, academy will go for it um with their fusty views it'll probably be that fucking film about winston churchill with 
Gary Oldman <laughs> and whatever that no one can remember the name of who cares about other than kind of like geriatric pensioners who go to the cinema once a week, once a year. Mm. You know what I mean? The King's Speech crowd. They'll be doing gangbusters business at the showroom. Mm-hmm. Only, only uh, before kind of like three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, <laughs> I would have thought. But yeah, I mean, yeah. that's a good selection of films, man. Um, I'm I'm kind of uh, pleased with that bunch. Yeah, and there's there's uh, a lot of films that kind of also could have made it. Pretty sure that were on a lot of ballots. Stuff like Logan, which was mm-hmm. um, a really good movie. Um, stuff like Dunkirk, which you know is going to be uh, a big contender, but also critically, like people really liked it. Yeah, strong year, strong field. Yeah, a very strong field, and I think those will count as our recommendations for this week because uh, we just talked about a bunch of movies. Yeah, so we'll. Uh, We'll call time on the year for 2017. Thank you all for listening over the course of the last year. We'll uh, see you in January. If you've enjoyed the show, then please uh, subscribe, rate, review us on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, all the usual places. Recommend us to your friends. It's the best way for us to get new listeners. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with our preview of 2018 it doesn't stop the content mill keeps (laughs) rolling along but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me happy new year everyone yeah happy new year